The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And joining me in the studio today on Halloween of 2013 is Professor Joel Best from the Sociology Department. We're going to talk about Halloween, sex, and student loans. Welcome, Joel. Happy Halloween. And to you as well. (laughs) Now, before we turn our attention to some of your upcoming books, some of the projects you worked on on your recent sabbatical, please tell us about your connection with Halloween. I think this is pretty funny. Well, I am the world's leading expert on poisoned Halloween candy. Uh, (laughs) I'm the only person that studies uh, poisoned Halloween candy. Uh, I started uh, doing research on this in the early 1980s, and uh, this time of year I wind up giving lots and lots of interviews to uh, people in the press. I've been doing it for 30 years. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing your wisdom with us. Now, these legends have gone on, what, from about the 1950s or so? Yeah. I, uh, the earliest that I've heard uh, these stories circulating are in the years right after the Second World War, late 40s, early 50s. And at that time, people uh, warned that uh, some folks would heat pennies on a skillet and pour the hot pennies into the outstretched hands of trick-or-treaters. You don't hear about that anymore. But uh, beginning in the uh, 60s and 70s, you you hear a lot of people talking about poison, uh, sharp objects uh, in uh, Halloween treats, razor blades and apples, and so on. These are myths. Why are they so pervasive? Yeah, they're they're contemporary legends. uh, the first thing you need to understand is that uh, this either doesn't happen or it doesn't happen very much. Uh, my research has involved looking at press coverage uh, going back to 1958. So I have 55 years of data. And during those uh, 55 years, I can't find any evidence that any child has ever been killed or seriously injured from a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. So the idea that this is a frequent crime is simply wrong, and it's probably best understood as a contemporary legend or what some people will sometimes call an urban legend. I think you said there was, you you told me when we met a couple of weeks ago that there was one case where a child died from poisoned Halloween candy, but... Yeah, yeah, his dad had taken out an insurance policy uh, on the the kid, and then he uh, uh, gave a poison treat to his son, I think probably assuming that since this was so common, no one would ever suspect uh, (laughs) this was going to be the perfect crime. And uh, it did take a couple of days, but uh, he was arrested, tried, convicted, and this was down in Texas. Eventually, he was executed for murdering his son. There have also been at least four other deaths that have been attributed uh, to this, but in each case, 
within a day or two, there's been a retraction that's been printed. Uh, one kid was alleged to have received heroin in his Halloween treats, and then a couple of days later, there was a report that, no, he'd gotten into his uncle's heroin stash and so on. <laughs> I guess these myths are so pervasive because of our fears for the future of our children. Yeah. Yeah, I think children are the walking, talking future. And I think that when we worry about kids, a lot of times we're expressing fears about the future. Uh, We uh, hear lots and lots of apocalyptic scenarios that the world could end through nuclear war or nuclear winter or environmental devastation or global pandemic or asteroid strikes or whatever. And we can't do much about any of those things. Uh, But what we by golly can do is protect our kids from poisoned Halloween treats. And, uh, you know, this is such an easy thing to manage. If you are worried about this, don't let your kids go trick-or-treating insist you go with them, only go to the houses of people you know, inspect all the treats before any are eaten, trick-or-treat at the mall, go trunk-or-treating at your church parking lot, whatever. And then on the morning of November 1st, when the family gathers around the breakfast table, you can count noses, and you can see (laughs) that everybody's still there, and you can go, you know, we don't have to worry about that for another 364 days. It's a great thing to be afraid of. And if you think about it, this is a, a, a very odd story because you're imagining that there's somebody living down the street who is so crazy that he's going to poison little children at random, but he's so tightly wrapped that he only does it one night a year. Uh, it's a little hard to understand how that's going to work out. <laughs> I guess... Yeah, fear for our children and this urban legend um, is a segue into one of the two projects you were working on during your sabbatical where you were investigating urban legends about children's sexual behavior at parties. Yes, yes. We, we uh, uh, Katie Bogle, who's a former graduate student at UD, and I uh, have written a book about uh, Uh, two stories. One is the story of sex bracelets and the other is the story of rainbow parties. And both of these are stories about kids misbehaving sexually. Uh, Both stories came into circulation in the fall of 2003, so they're just 10 years old. They just had their 10th birthdays. And uh, the sex bracelet story uh, is that uh, kids are wearing these uh, soft, uh, brightly colored O-rings of uh, gel plastic. And uh, they've been around for a long time, but in 2003, a story began to circulate that each color had a sexual meaning and that if uh, someone uh, broke one of your bracelets, you were obliged to perform the sexual act associated with that color. Um, Similarly, uh, around the same time, you begin to hear about rainbow parties. Rainbow parties involve... uh, kids, usually junior high schoolers, who are uh, gathering. The girls put on different shades of lipstick, and they perform oral sex uh, uh, on uh, the boys who are attending. Now, both of these stories imagine a kind of sexual sophistication and callousness that I think really frightens adults, and they they, they worry about this. Uh, There is, of course, next to no 
evidence that anyone's ever performed a serious <laughs> sexual act after having a bracelet broken, let alone having attended a rainbow party. But this is the kind of thing that people view as speaking to the, their, their anxieties, and uh, they worry about it. You told me when we, were, when we met a few weeks ago that, that the, both of these stories follow the, the typical s- spike zero, spike zero pattern that you see with urban legends. Yeah, th- this was something that I think, th- uh, this is one of the things that we really uh, established in our research. Uh, when people have studied contemporary legends, one of the things they'll say is these stories spread, but we can't explain exactly how they spread. And because these stories both started, our two stories both started in 2003, you had a fairly mature internet. You didn't have Facebook, but everything else was really in place. And uh, so we were interested in tracking the timing of uh, different comments about uh, sex bracelets and rainbow parties on the web. And it turned out that these occur in very short bursts. Uh, There's a lot of intensity uh, uh, for a short period of time, uh, and then it goes away. And I think this makes perfect sense because uh, these are stories that depend upon being repeated. And if you say to somebody, have you heard about rainbow parties? And the answer is, yeah, I heard about that. The story is going to die out really quickly. One of the other things that you were working on while you were in sabbatical was a lot more serious project. Mm-hmm. I think, didn't it have its origins at a Thanksgiving dinner conversation? It, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I, I wrote a book uh, about student loans with my oldest son, Eric, who's a uh, a UD graduate and a uh, WVUD veteran. He was one of the people at uh, Launch Zero Hour uh, long ago, uh, and uh, we were we were at Thanksgiving, and Eric was ranting about uh, student loans, and he was saying student loans are just like the housing crisis, and. I didn't understand that, and I told him I didn't get it. And and he said, well, you know, think about it. Uh, In both cases, Democrats want people to have a good thing. They want people to own homes. They want people to uh, 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 go to college. And Republicans don't want regulation. And uh, we saw how well that worked in the housing crisis, (laughs) and we're setting up the same kind of thing with student loans. And I'd been thinking about student loans as a possible research topic for a long time. I'd been going to approach it from a, a, uh, uh, a different angle. But I told Eric, I think that's uh, a, a, a really good idea. Actually, I asked him where he'd heard it, and he said, no, I, uh, that's mine. I, I thought that up. And I said, well, you can publish that, I'm pretty sure, and he, he, he went on to publish it. And so uh, the two of us uh, kept talking about it a little bit for about a year, and, and we decided... Uh, uh, maybe we could write a book together, and we've done that. How long have the student loan programs been around? It's been, what, since Sputnik? Yeah. The first big uh, federal student loan program starts in 1958, and it's very much a reaction to uh, Sputnik, the first Russian satellite, which was launched in 1957. Uh, Americans at the end of the Second World War, which, of course, ended with the atomic bomb, um, Uh, were very much convinced that scientific dominance was going to be vital in the the world to come. And they assumed that we were really the one scientific superpower. And it was a tremendous embarrassment 
for the Russians to launch a satellite. And Americans have been saying, we're going to launch a satellite soon. We're really, really soon. We're going to do this. But nothing had happened, and the Russians went ahead and did it. And uh, people in the United States really panicked because uh, it seemed like their scientific engineering leadership had vanished. And uh, they blamed schools, and they said uh, the schools aren't, we aren't educating enough scientists and engineers. So um, uh, one response to this was the National Defense Education Act of 1958, and the name says it all. It was federal support of education for in the service of national defense. And part of that uh, bill was a student loan program, which was earmarked for people who were going to study science, engineering, and education on the grounds that you know, teachers would educate the next generations of scientists and engineers. So this is a relatively small program. It gets started in 1958, and then it just balloons over the years. How fast did it grow? Well, uh, it hit uh, $100 million, uh, I think, in 1962. Uh, that was the amount of loans that were written in 1962. By 1970, it was 10 times that. It was a billion. Uh, by 19, I don't know, 85, something like that, it was 10 billion. Uh, it hit $100 billion a year in t- uh, 2011. Uh, and in 2012, we reached another milestone. The total student loan debt in the United States is $1 trillion. Wait a minute. That's just a short, over a short period of time. Yeah. Well, yeah. In 55 years, we went from zero to a trillion dollars. Oh, wow. trillion dollars is real money. And what's really troubling about this is that we're on a course to hit $2 trillion in 2020. $2 trillion in student loans. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be the total outstanding debt in 2020. So this is uh, this is growing really rapidly, and uh, we need to think a little bit about what we're going to do. No one is worried very much about this, and the reason they haven't worried about it is that they think of it as an asset. Um, government accountants are treating it as an asset. Now, imagine that you borrowed, uh, you loaned ten dollars to your best friend. And you might say to yourself, well, you know, my best friend, he, you know, he forgets things. And, and you might say, I'll never get that $10 back. Or you might say, my best friend is completely reliable. You know, and if somebody said, how much money do you have? You might say, well, I have $20 in my wallet, but I also, my best friend owes me $10. So he treated us in the asset. Yeah, that's right. And that's how the government thinks of student loans. They think if people owe the government a trillion dollars, that's a trillion dollars that they're sure to get back. Uh, and in the past, you know, that's, that's been more or less true. Uh, you can't uh, unload student loans by declaring bankruptcy. Uh, you really need to uh, – it's very difficult to get out of repaying your student loans. The government has the power to, uh, you know, seize your uh, tax refunds and things like that. So that, uh, you know, they do – they have been able to get most of it back. But the amount that's that are being owed are much greater. And um, there are a variety of other things that are making this uh, a more serious problem. It's, it's difficult for me to believe that all tr- $1 trillion is coming back. You look at uh, my son and his wife are recent college graduates, and they both have what to me seems like 
an enormous amount of uh, student loan debt. Mm -hmm. And it it just, I don't know how they're going to pay it back and still be able to afford a house once mm -hmm. there are little babies. Mm -hmm. No, this is, this is exactly what's happening. Um, uh, when we go back to that uh, National Defense Education Act, you could borrow $1,000 a year. And now uh, the average student who has student loan debt has more than $25,000 in debt. And people that go on to graduate or professional education can easily rack up, uh, you know, high five-figure, six-figure student loan debts. Uh, and in some cases, it's very difficult to imagine how they're going to pay those back. Now, as a sociologist, I think part of what interests you here are some of the myths behind the, the um, or some of the beliefs, deeply held beliefs, let's call them mm -hmm. that rather than myths, that, mm -hmm. the, that the political parties have as mm -hmm. they come up with or oppose these kinds of programs. Yeah, I think that if you, if you look at the student loan problem, you can see that people have been talking about student loans in different ways. And they, the way that they talk about it tends to fix on a very narrow part of the problem. So the National Defense Education Act uh, was really designed to address what I call the wasted brain power problem. It was the idea that we had these smart kids who weren't being able to pursue higher education because they couldn't afford it, and therefore the United States was not making the best use of its brain power, and that's why the Russians were launching Sputnik. Okay, so so that's a that's a model for how to think about student loans. Um, Within uh, 15 years, people had talk, started talking about student loans very differently, and they were worrying about deadbeats. They were worrying about students who were uh, not paying back their loans, who were declaring bankruptcy, and this became a fixation with the government. How are we going to collect this money for about 25 years? And then sometime in the 1990s, people begin talking about this in, as a problem of crushing debt, you know. Uh, What's going to happen to young people who can't afford to start families and uh, uh, buy a house and so on because they have uh, such uh, student loan obligations? Uh, more recently, there's been the fear that uh, student loans may be a bubble, that uh, people are bidding up the price of higher education and it's going to collapse just the way the housing bubble or the dot-com bubble popped. So, you know, each of these, it's not that these are wrong. Uh, each of them has some truth to them. But in each case, what's happening is we're focusing on a narrow part of the problem. And when we focus on a narrow part of the problem, we ignore the rest of the problem. And the rest of the problem has been allowed to grow and grow and grow. You know, uh, 100 million, a billion, 10 billion, 100 billion, you know, a trillion dollars. It, it, it's, it's growing kind of outside our notice. It's also had effects on students as consumers and parents as consumers. I mean, as oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, th this is this is going to become a major fact for a lot of young people uh, how to how to uh, uh, pay these things back. And there's, you know, I think that what we need to understand is that when people have borrowed a trillion dollars, there are really only three ways that we can get that back. Okay, that money did not fall out of the sky. We're going to have to address it somehow. And one way is everybody pays their loans back. But that becomes harder and harder to envision as more people are borrowing ever more money. Uh, a second way to deal with it 
is uh, to say, uh, we'll raise taxes. Uh, you know, we'll, you know, we'll forgive the loans, and the taxpayers will make it up. Well, a trillion dollars in taxes is a whole lot of money. Oh, that's not going to be very popular. To to uh, uh, fix things so that uh, people wouldn't borrow next year would cost about three hundred dollars per man, woman, and child. Uh, you know, are people going to be up for that kind of tax increase? And and uh, the third thing that you can do is you can just add it to the national debt. And that's going to push the problem off on to today's students, but in a different way. They're going to be dealing with the consequences of having a vastly larger national debt. National debt is, is something in the neighborhood of $15 trillion. So, uh, you know, you, you throw in student loans, you forgive all student loans, and you've, you've really increased the national debt by a lot in a very short period of time. That's not a good idea either. But there also are effects that uh, you were talking about with me um, a few weeks ago on on parents and and children as they're graduating high school as they are shopping for colleges. I mean, the the whole student loan business has ratcheted up, you know, the uh, yeah the tuition rates so that a school will say okay, our our fees are fifty six thousand dollars, but we're going to give you nineteen thousand dollars. Yeah. In, in, and grants. Yeah, I, I think that, that one of the things that people did not appreciate was that student loans would lead to a lot of bad behavior. Um, it, it, they have made students price insensitive. That is, uh, uh, if you say to yourself, uh, college is very expensive, I'm going to have to borrow a boatload of money here are two schools that are offering me uh, admission, and this one is going to, I'm going to have to borrow a boatload of money, and this one over here is going to cost a boatload plus uh, some more. You may say to yourself, there really isn't any difference. And so you're not paying, uh, you're not thinking about price in the way that you would be if you went to the supermarket and you uh, could see that there were two bags of potato chips and one was a lot more expensive, and you, and you might, uh, you know, be more price sensitive. Um, Another place where uh, this has created bad behavior is in state universities. Legislatures have unloaded more of the increasing costs of education onto students. So that when I went to the University of Minnesota when I was a boy, uh, tuition and fees were $75 a quarter. And per course? Per quarter. Okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah, $225 a year. And so it was essentially a free education. And, you know, obviously you couldn't, you know, send me to the university for $75 a quarter. The state of Minnesota had said, uh, okay, we're going to give uh, Joel essentially a free education. And uh, in return, he's going to become a productive citizen and he's going to pay taxes and we'll get the money back that way. That was a kind of bargain that was made uh, in the past. But you know, once you have student loans available, legislators can start saying, why exactly are we giving Joel a free education? Why shouldn't he pay for more of the cost of his education? After all, he's the one that's going to be making the big bucks later on. And it's not like we're keeping him out of college because he's going to be able to get one of those student loans. And so if you look, it's not that legislatures have contributed less to colleges. They've, it's actually gone up a little bit. But 
it hasn't kept pace with the rising cost of education, and an increasing proportion of the costs of education are being borne by the students. Okay, and very much the same hap- thing happens in private colleges. If you are thinking that uh, uh, you want the best students, and you realize the students aren't price sensitive, then you don't need to worry about cost so much. You may say, we can have a nicer campus if we add this, if we add this, if we add this, if we make new features that will attract students. And it doesn't really matter what they cost because the students can pay for it because they're going to be able to get student loans. So that all of these things are combined together. Uh, and they've created a kind of vicious circle uh, that uh, we need to uh, we need to address. We've got about two minutes left. How are we going to get out of this situation? What, what what solutions did you and Eric come up with, or have you? Well, I I think that we we have a list of uh, I think it's fifteen or sixteen recommendations in the, in the final chapter. This isn't that there's one villain. You know, there there aren't any villains here. This is all people with good intentions. But I think we need to do a bunch of things. I think that we need to encourage students to be more price sensitive. I think we definitely need to get the costs of higher education under control. We need to encourage legislatures to uh, increase support for uh, student uh, lending. And there, there are a host of other things that are going on. One of the consequences that we haven't really talked about is uh, you have the emergence of for-profit institutions which are completely dependent upon student loans and are not delivering particularly good value. Uh, in August, uh, President Obama uh, put forth a uh, proposal that the government would begin to rank colleges. And that was an attempt to kind of steer for-profits in a more Uh, constructive direction. So I think that there are a whole lot of things that need to be done and uh, it would really help if we'd start looking at the big problem rather than little tiny pieces of it. Does your book have a title yet? It it does, The Student Loan Mess, and it should be out in May. University of California Press. May 2014. Look for it where high quality books are sold. (laughs) Thank you so much, Joel, for joining us on Campus Voices. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website, Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org. <laughs>